One time I was outside and some people were walking by and I said, hey, excuse me, what do you think this building is? Like just randomly. They're like, uh, a bank? I was like, all right, thank you. Like just wanted to know what your thoughts were. And so the way they're going to know us is not by signage and not by putting, you know, a 50-foot cross on top or any of those things. They'll know us by how we love each other, right? That's what the Bible says, that they will be identify you by how you love And so we've been in this idea of won't you be my neighbor and loving your neighbor, but I need you to understand something. Loving your neighbor is going to cost you, right? Right now, my wife and I, we've been in the process for the last year or two of of just house hunting, and that's been interesting, right? Like, uh, at first, everyone was asking for like, I mean, the ugliest little nasty home, $3 million. I ain't paying that for that house. And now it's like, oh, now the prices dropped and the interest rates are higher than they've ever been. And I'm just like, man, this whole ordeal, like we're trying to buy our forever home because I never want to go through this again. Like I just want to buy one and leave it at that. And so as we're looking, you, you understand, especially in Chicago, uh, not every neighborhood costs the same, right? Depending on the kind of neighbors you want, there's a different price, And so, you know, it costs something to be a neighbor. There is a price to being a neighbor. And so I want to talk to you about that as I look back at our story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. I want you to look at what happens in verse 34 through 35. And let me just, before I read it, let me give you a quick recap of what's going on. There's this very infamous road between Jericho and Jerusalem where it was infamous for people getting robbed, people getting beat up by bandits. Uh, It was a road that not many would take. Usually the Pharisees, I'm sorry, the Levites and the priests, they would walk down this road because it was something they had to, to go from where they lived to where they served in the temple. But most of the time people would go in groups, they wouldn't travel on their own. And so the story tells us Jesus is answering this uh, question that a lawyer or a, a guy who's trying to like show him up asks him, when he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer being a smart aleck, he's like, so who's my neighbor? So Jesus goes into this parable and he says, hey, there was this road. You guys know the road. We know the road. I can name a few streets in Chicago that y'all be like, yeah, I wouldn't walk down that road by myself either. I don't know if you were like me growing up, the rule was don't go down small streets. Like, that was our rule as a teenager. And like, don't go in this neighborhood, and if you have to, don't go down the small street. Like, the only time I ever did that, I got jumped. So I just learned, don't go down small streets. <laughs> so there was this infamous road, and Jesus, as he's telling this parable, he says there was a man that was beaten and left half dead on the side of the road. And then a, a, a priest came, and he saw him, and instead of going to help him, he walked over to the other side. And then a Levite who was part of that royal priestly tribe. They come by. He sees him. He does the same thing. He walks over to the other side. Two people within Jewish culture that would have been natural assumptions to help did not. And then he says, and then a good Samaritan comes by, right? And he helps. And I want you to notice something about the Samaritan. For those of you who are new to this series, you'll know that uh, the Samaritan was not liked by the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, they were hated. This is some deep racial discrimination, racial issues. There was a despise for them because Samaritans were mixed between Jewish people and people from Samaria, which to the Jewish culture was the biggest no-no. And so when he says there was a Samaritan, people probably snarled, people probably didn't like it, or at the very least were very thrown off at the idea that a Samaritan would be the hero of the story. 
But I want you to see what makes him a hero in verse 34 through 35. The Bible says that he went to him, meaning the guy on the road, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you send, I will, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Okay, so the first two guys, the guys who everyone thought should help, the guys who were the obvious choice to be able to help, they see the man and they go to the other side. They go to the other side. And yet here comes a Samaritan who sees a Jewish person who he knows doesn't like him, who I'm sure I don't like you either, right? Like if there was, you know, a whole group of people across the street that didn't like me, I ain't gonna like you either. That's just how we're gonna be. And so he has this situation. He sees this guy beat up, broken, bruised. Most people would assume he got what he deserves. I'm gonna keep on walking. Most would say, well, he wouldn't do anything for me, so I'm just gonna leave him there. I'm gonna mind my own business. I'm gonna keep on walking. And again, being from Chicago, a lot of us, we just mind our own business. We just keep on walking. It reminds me of one time, though, when I was little. I was about maybe eight years old, nine years old. My family and I, we were visiting in Mexico, and uh, we're from south of Mexico, and uh, we're from a poor little town. Uh, how I know is when we travel to Mexico, the transportation gets, gets less every time we get closer to where we live. So like we start with an airplane and then we take a nice bus to the state and then we take a not so nice van down to the city and then we take a, a car. I don't know if it's a taxi or if it's a guy that picked us up and he takes us closer and, and then we walk for like four miles. Like when you walk in, that's when you know like ain't no cars that even take you to where you live. And I remember I was outside of my grandparents' house. We were all playing. And in the middle of the day, it's a weird scenario, there was a guy carrying his, I think he was passed out drunk or something else. Like He was not well. And he's dragging him in the street. And he lays him in front of me. And he says, in Spanish, he goes, watch my friend. I'm going to go get some other friends to help us. But can you watch my friend? And I said, okay. <laughs> So I'm standing there, and I'm, again, I'm in a country that's not my own, and a place that's not my own, and I'm just, I'm watching him. That's what he asked me to do. He's like, watch my friend. Like, I'm watching him. And so my mom comes out, and she's like, Joey, Joey, come here. What are you doing? Come here. I go, no, nah, Ma, I told the dude I was going to watch him. She said, come here. I said, like, I'm a man of my word, mother. I said I would watch this man. I'm going to watch him. And I, I remember talking to my mom years later. He's like, why would you let me watch him? You said you, 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 said you were going to watch him. So what did you do? I watched you. I was like, okay, good job, mom. So she watched me while I watched him. And I stood there, and I just, again, I'm not, I'm eight. What am I going to do? I just, all I could do was watch him. And eventually he did show up with his friends, and they picked him up, and, and they're like, thank you. And I was like, got you, anytime. I'm here for you. <laughs> See, it would have been easy, like, as, even as an eight-year-old, it would have been expected to go, no, dude, are you kidding me? Why? Don't even get near that scenario. And yet the Samaritan he gets very near the scenario, so near that it costs him a number of things. I think part of the reason why we're not the kind of neighbors that God asks us to be is because we're not willing the price that it takes to be a good neighbor. We're not willing to go out of our way. We're not willing to do the extra things. We're not willing to do anything that costs us anything. And being a good neighbor is going to cost you something. If you look at this man, I want to look at at least four things that it cost him that I think God wants to remind us of this morning. Number one is this. Being a good neighbor is going to cost your resources. 
It's going to cost you some resources. Right? The Bible says that when he came to him, he bound his wounds with bandages and oil. This was already on his person, the Samaritan. A man who's traveling down this road, he probably understood, you know, the whole layout. He understood the dangers and the risks of being down this road. So he had a first aid kit. And he uses his own personal first aid kit, which I imagine in those days you couldn't just pop into Walgreens and buy a first aid kit. But he uses his own resources on someone else. He takes his own stuff and he gives it to someone else. Listen, John chapter 6, verse 5 through 9, reminds us of a similar story. It says, Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? You know, sometimes we look at our resources and we think, I don't have enough. Okay, God, you want me to give my resources? Well, I don't have enough. Well, if you look at the story, oil and bandages is not enough to fully heal this man, but it is a good triage. It is a good temporary solution until we can get you to more help. Listen, sometimes God's just asking you to be triage. Sometimes God's just asking you to be a part of the solution. Listen, I'm being very honest with you. We're giving out 28 pallets of food, but this isn't like vegetables and meat and, and rice. Like This isn't food, food. Most of this are snacks and drinks, and, and you know, they're littler things. And so a cynic would look at that and say, well, what are we really doing? We're doing something. And sometimes we get mad and we think, well, if I can't do all of it, I won't do some of it. Well, if everybody did some of it, maybe all of it would get done. Like, that's the point. Like, God is asking you to give what you have. When you look at the parable of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is testing his own disciples. Hey, listen, there's 5,000 men here, not including women and children. How are we going to feed all of them? And they look at the situation and they're blown away. They go, no, 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 there's no way we could do this. This is way too big of a situation. And again, there are times when I look at our problems in our society, in our culture, even in our city and in our community, in our neighborhood, and I go, we can't solve this. Like, we can't, this is too big of an issue. This is systemic. This is larger than my own person. This is too big. And oftentimes, when you see something too big, you don't even try. You ever like, like had a mess? I don't know, maybe like you're clearing out a basement, maybe it's spring cleaning or something like that. You open the door and you look at all of it and you go, nah, I'm good. <laughs> we'll do it next week. Right? You ever just done that? Like when it's so big, you're just like, I, I, don't even, I don't have the mental aptitude to mess with this right now. Like it's just, I don't want to do it. And the problem is because it's never going to get smaller, it's only ever going to get bigger, you never get to it. Where if you just, hey, you know what? How about today we just take care of this corner of the room? And next week we'll get to this next space. And the week after that, and listen, it might take us five months, you know, but we'll get to it. As opposed to always looking at the mess and going, no, we're not going to solve it. And again, that's what happens is we look at situations and we go, oh, we're just giving out a few boxes, a few bags of food. We're not going to solve people's hunger. No. But maybe we give them a little bit enough to make it to the next day. 
and then I'm going to let God deal with that next portion because I'm going to be faithful to what God asked me to do. My thing right now, what I got on me is I got bandages and I got some oil. Let me take care of this. I got some bread and I got some fish. Now, I remind you, Jesus and his disciples, they didn't steal this little boy's lunch. That would have been a messed up part of the story. Right? Hey, hey, Jesus, this kid got some food. Let's go jack it real quick. He's a little kid. I could take him. Right? They, didn't, they didn't do that. The kid, he gave it. I think it's a very specific reason why it was a child, because only a child would believe that. Hey, we need to feed these 5,000 people. Son, can we have your lunch? Yes. And he gave it. He gave it freely. I think because he was probably taught that. I would imagine maybe he didn't pack his own lunch. Maybe his mom packed his lunch. Maybe his mom and dad taught him, son, if someone's hungry, you feed them. I know in my household, that was something that was always taught to us. Anyone who came to my home, you ate. And I remember my friends always getting upset because it was kind of rude to serve you more than they would serve me. So they would serve us equally. And my friends like, I can't eat as much as you. I'm like, you better finish it. My mom's going to get mad if she sees you didn't finish. Joy, please, would you finish my food? Please finish my It's my friend's fault I got like this. I was doing all right. My mama gave me just enough. That was a hard laugh, though, Pastor Izzy. That was, they erupted with it pretty bad. This is going to cost you resources. But are you willing to give it up so that someone else can have? The other thing is going to cost you, and this one's even harder than resources sometimes, is being a good neighbor is going to cost you comfort. It's going to cost you comfort. Again, let's go back. We all know, like, when you hear that Southside music playing Saturday morning, you know what's the time. But when you get an adult, guess what? You handle the playlist. So sometimes you decide not to put the music on and you don't want to clean and you don't want to take care of the chores. And you don't, like when I was a kid, I remember wanting to be an adult so bad. Now even my days off are not my days off. It's just like, oh my gosh, everything is so much harder because I just want to sit down. I just want to lay down, not do anything. And it's hard to get out of your comfort zone sometimes. But look at the Samaritan. It would have been enough for him to bandage his wounds, put some oil on it, and be like, all right, you'll be all right, buddy. Next guy down the road, he'll help you out. Be cool. Nobody else did anything, right? I already did something. But the Bible says, no, he set him on his own donkey. Now, this man didn't have a donkey for fun. He wasn't like, it's not like a dog where he's taking him for a walk. This is what he's riding because this is a journey. We're not used to walking that much no more, right? Like, this is, this is walking, And he sets the wounded man on his donkey, meaning the Samaritan now has to walk. I'm going to set aside my comfort for your comfort, and I will be uncomfortable in order to make you comfortable. Most of us wouldn't be willing to do that. Most of us would rather other people be uncomfortable. I remember, you know, listen, we're going to get old school on it. I ain't rode the bus in a long time, but I remember there was rules when you were riding the bus as a kid. If you saw a pregnant woman, if you saw an elderly person, you got up and you gave up your seat. Now you might get yelled at for that, but listen, I'll give up my seat for you. And there were people that would check you on the bus. Hey, get up. Oh, okay, sir. Yes. (laughs) Why? Because there was etiquette to that. Because I'd rather be a little bit more uncomfortable in order to help you be comfortable. That's being a good neighbor. That's being in a good society. Listen, 2 Corinthians gives us a great example of that. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 through 7 says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. 
So all of our comfort comes from God. He comforts us in all our troubles, but there's a reason, so that we can comfort others. So you are comforted not to be comfortable, but to make others comfortable. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort that God gives us. Now here's the truth. The harder you work, the more comfortable it feels when you lie down. Right? The harder you work, the more comfortable it feels when you lie down. As a matter of fact, if you're lying down all day, it hurts. If you, especially the older you get, man, that back don't do what it used to do. If you're lying down all day, it hurts. But when you're working, when you're active, when you're moving, when you're doing all those things, and then you lie down, you get that back crack and that stretch, and then you go, why? Because you've suffered, so now the comfort is that much more enjoyable. And now you understand how important it is to experience that. I remember when I first started working, when I was about 13, I worked at a factory unloading 18-wheelers, 40-pound cases each by myself, you know, walk barefoot, back and forth, right? But it was a hard job, and I was getting paid $5 an hour. I'd ride my sister's bike there, a little pink mountain bike, and I'd ride there and get my $5, do my 10 hours of work, go home. I remember I'd even work at the daily pay where they would pick up, usually migrant workers. I remember working a midnight shift at uh, Entman's Bakery. So I worked under the fake name, Isidro Diaz. It was a fake social. That was my name. 13 years old, working with a bunch of 30-year-olds, you know, baking. Like, literally, I worked in an industrial oven. Like, all the, I, it was just crazy. Don't, don't call service on my parents. This is what we did. <laughs> I remember coming home, lying in bed, dead exhausted. Literally, I, it was so filthy in the trucks that when I would shower, it was nothing but black coming off me. I'd blow my nose. It was nothing but black filth and dirt. I remember taking that shower after a 10-hour shift, lying down in my bed, and my father coming and saying, did you like that? I go, no. You want to do that the rest of your life? I go, no. Make sure you do good in school. Okay, puppy. <laughs> he was trying to teach me a lesson in that moment. I didn't know comfort until I experienced suffering. Some of you have never experienced that comfort until you've experienced the suffering that you've gone through. And the problem, or the good thing is, once you've experienced that suffering and that comfort, when you see others suffering, you want to give them the comfort that you've then experienced. Because there are others who are suffering without any comfort on the other end. And this is what God is saying. He's saying, listen, you've suffered and I've comforted you. And now that you've experienced my comfort, be mindful of other people's suffering and an opportunity to comfort them. I wonder if this Samaritan had ever been in a situation where somebody helped him and he thought, listen, someone wants to put me on their donkey, so I'm going to put you on mine. See, being a good neighbor is going to cost you some stuff. It's going to cost you resources. It's going to cost you comfort. And this one might be even harder than those two. Being a good neighbor is going to cost you time. Time. He brought him to an inn. I don't know if the Samaritan was planning to go to an inn. Because he didn't stay. At least the Bible doesn't tell us he stayed. It probably wasn't on his way. It might have been out of his way. 
He took time out of his schedule, out of his routine, to go and take this man to an inn. Oftentimes, the reason I think we're not willing to love our neighbor is because we're not willing to give the time that it takes to actually love somebody. Again, as you get older, it's not like when you were a kid where you knock on somebody's door, hey, you want to come outside and play? And then they come outside and you play all day. When you're older, you're like, bro, I haven't seen you. We should hook up. Yeah. How does March 2023 look? Oh, dope. All right, I'm going to put you in the calendar. March 2023. That's why when somebody calls you on that day in March, you're like, hey, man, I can't make it. You're like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> because we're selfish with our time. And I get it. Time is very precious. We all have the same amount of time. How we use it might be different. And so when we have something like what we did yesterday and we say, hey, could you come out for two hours? There's a lot of us going, uh, two hours. And then it's like a half hour to get there and a half hour to come back. And then, you know, it's church. They never start on time. And then we got to do, I just, it's, like, it's like 17 hours you're asking. I just, I don't have that. Listen, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Man, I'll be honest with you. Everyone in this room, present company included, can do better with our time. This whole world is in competition for your time, right? Your little black phone is in competition for your time. Literally, the longer I can get you to sit on this, the more profitable it is for the people on the other end. And here's the crazy part, especially like with iPhones. Now, they tell you how much time you spend on it. Like, they'll send you a text, and you're like, wow, I spent nine days on my phone this week. That's, that's miraculous, <laughs> Right? Like, it's just, and, and it don't phase you. It doesn't even bother you. It's just like, oh, that makes that make sense. Yeah. And maybe for a second, you're like, well, I probably shouldn't scroll that much. But think about it. Any second, any moment where you're not actively doing something, your natural reaction is to pull it out. Anywhere, anywhere you are, if there's a down moment, yep. But, Pastor, I'm working. Nah, shut up. <laughs> You're not working all the time, right? Most of the time, you're just scrolling. You're just, and again, I'm not knocking you for it. I do it. I get it. My point is, don't tell me you don't have time when what you do with your time is wasted. You, we all have the same amount of time. We're just using it poorly. And so make that extra time to meet with your neighbors, to go out of your way and help somebody. Take that time to connect with someone. Take that time, if you're going to pull your phone out, to text someone and remind them you love them and you care about them and you're thinking about them. Take that opportunity to make a connection. I remember for me, I love long drives because it's usually when I catch up on phone calls and when I catch up on, on meetings and I'm like, hey, listen, I'm in the car. I shouldn't be doing anything else. I'm going to put you on Bluetooth. I'm going to call you. I'm going to check in on you. Most of the times when I catch up with friends I haven't seen in a while, it's because I'm driving somewhere. And I'm like, all right, it's going to take me about 45 minutes to get there. That gives me like at least 30 minutes to talk to them. Let me call them up. Why? Because I'm driving anyways. I'm just listen to sports radio all day long. I get it. I get it. The Bears won. Thank God. I don't know about today, but last week was awesome. I'm going to celebrate that. Being a good neighbor, it's going to cost you things. But I think the hardest thing it's going to cost you is what's next. Because being a good neighbor 
is going to cost you financially. It said that the pocketbook, the wallet, is the last place of surrender for a Christian. It's the last thing we're willing to give up. God, I'll give you my resources. God, I'll give you my time. God, I'll give you myself. I'll give you my, my comfort. God, I'll give you everything. God's like, I want that sawbuck in your wallet. Mm. How about 10? <laughs> the Bible says that the man gave the innkeeper two denarii. This would have been enough, scholars believe, for at least two weeks worth of care at the end. Some even say two months. But let's just be more conservative. He says, here's enough for this guy to stay at this hotel for two weeks while you look after him. And then he says, and if he needs to be here longer, anything that he accrues above and beyond that, let me know. And when I come back, I'll settle my debt. He don't even know this guy. But what he knows is he's in need. And I'm in a position where I can help that need. So I'm going to do it. Listen, help me, or I want you to understand, because again, I think sometimes we, we take this overboard. I'm not saying you got to do everything for everyone. I'm not saying that everything you have is wrong and give it to everyone else and just live impoverished. And I'm not saying that. And I think sometimes there's this weird like thing where we think that Christians should all be broke, especially pastors. And I, very transparently, there's a lot of pastors, like we're worried about posting vacations or any kind of purchases we make because we don't want you thinking, well, look at pastor living all whole, on my dime. He's da da da. No, but we, we know how to save and invest money too, you know. Like we figure things out. But that's not necessarily true. It's not about being rich or poor, it's about being generous. And the rich and the poor can both be generous. Here's the situation. This man, he didn't set up a hospital on the side of the road so that every injured person would get. No, he helped one guy that he had an opportunity to help. And he gave financially of himself in order to do that. Here's what I believe. We give to things we believe in. The Bible is very clear when it comes to giving in the church. For those of you who are Christian, those of you who are not, don't even worry about this. Cover your ears for a few minutes. But those of you who are Christians, the Bible is very clear. It's not even about generosity. The Bible talks about your tithe. 10% of your income should come to the house of the Lord for the work of the Lord. And the Bible tells us if you don't give your tithe, you're robbing God. Why? Because the tithe belongs to him. And too many of us are like, ah, 10%, that's a lot, pastor. I make a lot of money. And I'm like, good for you. I'm glad you do. And I understand that the more money you make, the bigger a tithe is going to be, the harder it is to give. But don't forget about the 90% God gave you. Don't forget about the prayers that you prayed for that job and for that raise and for all that money that you asked for. Remember when you were praying about that? Remember on Wednesday night you came, you're like, hey, you need to pray, I need work. And it's like, okay, we'll pray. And then you got work. And all of a sudden you forgot about the Lord that got it for you. Uh, again, I get it. And I'm not, I, 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 we're not the kind of church that's going to sit here and you know, grab you by your ankles and shake every coin out of your pocket. I'm not that strong, Okay. But I do believe in generosity with all my heart. I do believe in giving. Can I just be, again, very transparent with you? All the things we're doing in the month, we talked about how big our calendar is. All of it is going out. None of it is bringing any kind of money in, right? So everything we did yesterday in our fall fest, that all came out of our funds. Literally over $1,000 worth of candy on top of all the other stuff we did. 
You know, when we do our, our family night with Excel and we feed, you know, upwards of 200 people, that's paid for. We're not asking people to pay for that. When we give away the food, that was donated by Convoy Hope, but we still had to pay for a forklift. Those aren't cheap, by the way, I've realized. We still have to pay for things. So, like, if you add up all the events we're doing in the next two months, you're probably looking at anywhere from seven to $10,000 that we're giving, that you gave. And some would say, well, why aren't we using that wisely? Five new families are here. You don't think that's wise? I'd do it if one person was here. I love that Pastor Evelyn said there was 802 because the two matter as much as the 800. It would have been very easy to just round it. But those two matter just as much as the 800. Listen, in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 33 through 35, says, I have never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. You know that these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and even the needs of those who are with me. This is Paul talking. And I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Man, and isn't that true, church? Isn't that true when you give? There is a far greater blessing than receiving. Being able to provide for someone's need, being able to show up in in a perfect time, in God's timing, and say, here, the faces of all those kids, when you just put some candy in their bag and they lit up and said, thank you. And it's so funny watching all of our volunteers. You guys looked like you were on cloud nine. I mean, on your face. The outfits, you looked ridiculous. But your face, cloud nine. You were so excited. Why? Because beautiful, wonderful children were coming to you with joy in their hearts because you gave them some candy. And I never get tired of seeing the face of someone when they receive the greatest gift of all in their salvation. So much better to give than to receive. Pastor Izzy, worship team, if you can help me out. Let me just give you one more thought here. We've been talking about Mr. Rogers, so let me give you one more Mr. Rogers story. In 1969, the government was threatening to cut the funding for public television, which is what Mr. Rogers was primarily broadcast on. You know the the commercials, right? The, The little drives, and you always wondered who the people in the background were answering the phone. So it's public television. It's funded by the people. And the government was going to cut their budget by $10 million. And so what does PBS do? They send Mr. Rogers. They go, Mr. Rogers, you got to go talk to them people. So Mr. Rogers shows up, and the guy who's leading the hearing was a senator from Rhode Island. Pastore was his name. And he was not what you would call maybe a kind man, hard man, stickler, had a reputation for being tough and kind of mean matter of fact I think I have a picture of that if you guys can show it I wanted to show you a clip but last week's video got taken down because people be funny about that but there's I don't know if we had the picture you didn't get it oh don't worry I'll just paint the picture they're in this senate hearing Mr. Rogers who looks very young no gray hair he's I mean really only been doing it for like six years he's standing there and he's telling them basically why he got into television He says, this is an opportunity that we have to influence and change the lives of children. 
And we use television for so many useless things, he said at the time, throwing pies in face and hitting people with anvils. He's like, I, I write all the scripts, I direct, I write all the songs. He was a one-man show at the time. <laughs> but he gives him a vision of why his program was important. And then he says, can I read you just an excerpt of one of my songs? Now, mind you, the senator has never even seen his show. In, in the hearing, he's asking, he's like, do we have your program? I, I won't watch it now, but I'd like to see it. And slowly, you kind of see the senator's you know, countenance change as Mr. Rogers is just telling him how important his program is to the lives of children. And then he reads them this song. And at one point, the senator says, I have goosebumps. And the senator just kind of looks away and he goes, Mr. Rogers, I think you just won $20 million. Instead of cutting the 10 million that they were planning to cut, they raised his budget by 20 million. Why? Because we give to the things we see value in. What we value, there is no price too high. When you value something, it's easy to give. Why? Because that matters more than me holding on to this. I'm saying all that because I want you to understand your value. You matter so much to God. And I know that sounds even borderline cheesy, but I think some of you have a hard time accepting that. Lord? <laughs> a little Morse code there. Yes, I do. But seriously, you, you matter so much to the Lord. So much so that we looked at you, you specifically, not you generally, you specifically. And he said, you're worth the price that I need to pay to have you. See, we always talk about salvation being a free gift. Yes, it's free to you, but it wasn't free in general. There's a price that has to be paid for you to have a relationship with God. The Bible says that as a result of sin in our lives, that the requirement for sin is death. That's the price that needs to be paid. Blood needs to be shed on behalf of your sin. That's why throughout the Old Testament, they would often kill animals in order to atone for sin, but it was always temporarily, it was always very limited. There's a price that has to be paid because all of us in this room have sinned. And none of us throughout history had ever been able to live righteously enough to really pay that price. We can't afford it. It's too much. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 through 19 says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. He hung on a tree, gave his life willingly so that you can experience eternal life with him. Why would he do that? Because he values you. That's what it all comes down to. You who think you have no value, you who think your mistakes have ripped you of your value, you who think your suffering and the things done to you have somehow made you less than. That's not true in the eyes of the Father. Because the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
He didn't wait for you to become perfect. He didn't wait for you to come to church for a certain amount of time and earn your keep. He saw you on the side of the road, half dead, and he said, they're worth me, not with oil and bandages, but with my blood healing. Not with a donkey, but on my back caring. to give to you so that you may experience life everlasting. So I'm going to ask you to stand, church, as we get ready to close. And if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you for just a moment to bow your head, close your eyes. I want to talk to those of you in this room who don't consider yourselves Christians yet. You don't have a relationship with God. You've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you did a long time ago, but you haven't been living like it. And truth is, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian today. I've been talking to you about your value. Doesn't matter how far you've gone, doesn't matter how long you've been away, your value does not diminish because your value is not determined by you. It's been determined by God. And God looked at you and said, you are worth every drop of blood to redeem and to restore and to make mine. And all you have to do is say yes to that. And you would receive the greatest gift anyone could ever receive. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, if there's anyone here who would say, Pastor, I don't have a relationship with God, but I want one. I've never given my life to the Lord, or, or again, I did, but I haven't been living like it. I want to rededicate my life right now. I'm not talking about coming to this church or being a part of this religion. I'm talking about a real relationship with the living God. Just lift up your hand right now, and I'm going to pray for you if that's you. Thank you, ma'am. Anyone else says, Pastor, that's me. Just lift up your hand, and I'll pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, sir. Come on. Thank you, bro. Anyone else? Thank you, sir. Thank you. Anyone else? Come on. I feel like some of you, one of you is holding back right now. Just let it go. Just go with it. It's okay. Anyone else? One more moment. Amen. Church, would you pray with me all together as we connect with these people? Say, Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner and I don't deserve your love and grace. But I thank you, God, that you value me more than I value myself, that you paid the price to make me yours. So, Lord, right in this moment, I ask you, forgive me of my sins. Make me new. Make me yours. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Come on, would you lift up a hand? Clap. Now listen, we're going to dismiss. I just want to leave you with a couple more thoughts before we go. To the church folk in this room, be generous. Be generous with what you have, your time, your comfort, your money. Come on out Wednesday night. Help us to pack and to pray and to put these things together. 
Make the effort. Be here with us on Saturday. Be a part of the church. Don't just come here and watch us do church. And do what God has called you to do. Everyone has a place here. Everyone can serve. Everyone can be a part of what we're doing. Our goal as a church is to make sure that all of us in this room are engaged in what God is asking of us. No more sideline. Get in it and be a part of what God's calling you to do. And listen, if there's some people, I know I gave that number $10,000, man. If you have it on your heart over the next few weeks to donate towards that cause, you can just put that, it doesn't matter what funds it goes in. You can just put it, you can give online. If you want to give a little extra, maybe God blesses you in some way. Again, I'm not twisting anybody's arm. I know God and I know God will provide for all of our needs in Christ Jesus. My point is don't ever say no to the movement of the Holy Spirit on your life because that's when you'll experience the greatest blessings of all, faith tested and proved in obedience. Amen? God bless you. We love you. We'll see you at Wednesday right here, Pack and Pray.